for me, one of the things I loved most about living in the Middle East, which I did for many years, was the morning market in Iran, where I spent a lot of time. No matter how arid or barren the geography, there always was a morning market, and so often the market was filled with bright red pomegranates or cherries in season or beautiful greens and melons. And the story goes, one of the stories of Iran is about this servant who goes to his master early in the morning, uh, tells him he's off to the market and gets uh, uh, instructions from the master and off he goes early in the morning. And when he reaches the market, he's, he's buying all the produce and provisions for the day. And in the middle of all of this, he looks up and across the way he sees death staring back at him. And death seems really shaken and surprised and this poor man is so alarmed and so startled that he drops the basket, runs home, tells his master what's happening and says, I'm out of here. He says, I'm going to Yazd, which is about a day's journey away. I don't want to be anywhere near this place. So off he goes to Yazd. So the master concerned, this is his beloved servant, goes to the market and finds death, looking very perplexed, and says to him, you know, I want to tell you that you really upset my servant this morning. And, um, you know, he's fled. And death said, well, you know, I'm really concerned because I was really surprised to see him here this morning. I have an appointment with him in Yaz this evening. We live in a universe governed by the laws of nature that are irrefutable, that are relentless, that are ordered, are so beautiful, and are eternal. And as a species, we human beings are a part of nature and these laws though so often in our ignorance and in our arrogance, we endeavor to place ourselves above and separate from the natural world. We deem ourselves undefined so often by the laws of nature of which we are a part. And the degree to which we do this is the degree to which we suffer. Our non-exactance of things as they are comes at a great price. Our disharmony with the laws of nature is a great cost to us in so many different ways, on so many different levels. In this miracle of life on our beloved planet, so often more beautiful than the singing of it, there is, in the end, only one single security. In a world so thirsting, so desperate for security, for solid ground, we want so much for something to hold on to, something that is unchanging, something that is dependable, something that is enduring. And in the end, the only single and true security 
as we told through all of the great spiritual traditions. The only security is our willingness and our capacity to take deep refuge in the changing nature of this universe. The primary laws governing all of life, all that is, is the relentless cycle of change that is manifesting moment to moment to moment. Nagarjuna, one of the great Buddhist uh, poets, says life is so fragile. He says, more so than a bubble blown to and, to and fro by the wind. He says, how truly astonishing it is that those who think that after an out-breath that they will surely breathe in again, or that they will awaken again after a night's sleep. We're now in the season of autumn, and if we live uh, on the mainland, in the northeast, this is the season of the leaves turning in the myriad beautiful colors of autumn falling to the ground to begin to provide the compost for next year's growth. The moon is beginning to brighten again into its fullness and then of course it will return to its darkness again in a few weeks. The tides around our islands ebb and flow relentlessly. The temperatures, they rise and they fall. There are times to be active and there are times to be fallow. Whether we look at this world on a macrocosmic level where galaxies are exploding into existence and out of existence all of the time, whether we look more microscopically as we did this morning at the breathing, we see that everything is changing moment to moment. The sensations in the body arise and pass away. And even in the view of modern physics, everything is changing. And at the most microscopic level that they can measure, particles can be split yet again and changed once more. And yet, we may as human beings be sensitive to the movement of the stars across the sky. We may be aware of the snows arriving on Mauna Kea and melting and passing away. We may be very aware of how the grasses here in Kamwela can be green and the next week they can be bone dry and dead. And nevertheless, somehow, we human beings can still place ourselves separate from all this flux. And this separation that we do on the deepest and the most subtle levels by placing ourselves outside of these rhythms of nature, these cycles of nature, is I feel and all of our elders, all our ancestors have said it again and again, is a violence and a delusion that hurts us so deeply, an immeasurable pain by setting ourselves separate and fighting what is true. We may see others die around us, and there is, if we look carefully, so much evidence of that. Those of you who work with hospice certainly are far closer to the cycles of birth and death than most human beings. The graveyards are a witness 
to all those that have passed before us. And yet somehow we still place ourselves outside of, outside of this. We hold ourselves steadfastly, immutably, and enduringly separate from all of these cycles of change. The Buddha said, just as an arrow shot by a skillful archer, as soon as he's pulled the string, does not wait but quickly reaches its target, so also is the life of humans. He says there is no moment of hesitation, no pausing, no way to turn around. This life, like the current of a great river, with every breath we take, with every step we take, never turning back, it moves on. We are drawing closer and closer to death, just as a prisoner being led to a place of execution with every step she or he comes closer to death, so also is the life of humans. And I feel it is a truly courageous moment in the life of any woman or man when she or he begins to deeply and fundamentally question the existential assumptions that have defined our sense of self for so, so long. So I believe we have great work together today. In truth for me, it really feels more like mischief, more like adventuring together, a joyful celebration. And at times this endeavor may feel dogged, it may feel difficult, but I believe from the bottom of my heart and from my experience that our endeavor to evoke and feel the fragility of life is a brave, courageous, and in the end a very simple one. For we are evoking what is already true, what has always been true, and what will be true forevermore. And I am also utterly convinced and certain and sure that our endeavor today is succulent with possibility, is so worthwhile and terribly, terribly important, both for us personally, for our community, and for our world. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who I know needs no introduction, said this before she died. She said, a chance for peace may thus be found in studying the attitudes towards death in the leaders of nations, in those who make the final decisions of war and peace between people. If all of us would make an all-out effort to contemplate our own death, and to deal with our anxieties surrounding the concept of our death and to help others familiarize themselves with these thoughts, perhaps there could be less destruction around us. And so today we have each other, and what a blessing that is. We are joined hand in hand, heart in heart, to look at what is perhaps difficult and uncomfortable 
But whenever I reflect on this, I feel so assured and certain that in our willingness to do that, we are joining with the hearts and minds, not only of those women and men all over the world, in all tradition, who are deeply questioning who they are and what their real place is in their universe, but that we are also joining the millions and uncountable millions over the ages who have made the same journey. For all of us, every one of us, without exception, share the same truth of this fragility of existence that is common to us all, without exception. So perhaps for some of you, when you told your families or friends what you were going to do today, that you are going to go meditate and look at this question of mortality, you know, it's understandable that people will say, well, what a morbid, what a sort of gloomy, depressing thing you're going to be doing today. And my hope is that you will have a real sense, as I do, that it is really something altogether different. That I believe that today we together step deeply into life and explore the possibility of moving beyond the grip of fear and the illusion of mortality that has shackled us and kept us from being the fullness, blossoming into the fullness of who we truly are. I believe in our willingness to face what is true. We spread our wings far wider than they've ever reached before and that we begin to unshackle ourselves from a prison that has contained us far too long. What is absolutely certain in this life, the only thing that is certain, apart from the law of change, is that we are going to die. And if we make death our enemy, if in any way death is considered a failure, what a harsh, harsh crucifixion that is. What a mutilation of ourselves that notion is. And yet, it's interesting to consider that most human beings feel that way. That important, I feel, is our work together today. And for me, the question is, how is it that we can come to some sort of accommodation with our mortality when we live in a world that so protects us from what is true, what is eventual. How do we do this? Because I have no doubt that this is the greatest act and gesture of self-love for any human being. I believe that for me to live fully, I have to die fully to the notion of immortality and somehow get myself to that landscape, that sacred landscape, where I know beyond a shadow of a doubt how precious life is, and that that preciousness informs every moment of my life and what I do. And I believe that how we live determines how we die, informs how we die. And central to this question for all of us is undoubtedly our relationship with the body. And I feel that that's one of the reasons why the Buddhas and 
and uh, the mystical traditions uh, uh, often, usually, begin with the body, begin an examination of the body, as we did this morning, being with the sensations of the sitting posture, being with the changing sensations of the breathing, beginning to understand what this body is and what this body isn't. Somehow, we have to make this journey for the alchemy, for the transformation of the human spirit to happen. We need to make peace with our bodies, whatever state our body is in, and not let our mind and our heart be imprisoned by our bodies. So often, so often there's the possibility that our mind can deteriorate in fear and confusion as our bodies get old, as they get sick, and as they die, which is inevitable. Somehow there needs to be the spirit that we can be absolutely undefined by what is inevitable in our body. The Buddha, looking with his wisdom at just the, poignant, um, the poignancy of the human condition, said, inconceivable is the beginning of this cycle of birth and death of which we all are participating. He says, not to be discovered is the first beginning of human beings who, obstructed by ignorance, instead by craving, are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths. Which do you think is more, the flood of tears which weeping and wailing you have shed upon the long way, hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths, united with the undesired, separated from what we want, this or the water of the four great oceans. And he says, long have you suffered the death of fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, and while you were thus suffering, you have shed more tears upon this long way than there is water in the four great oceans. And, this, and thus you have long undergone suffering and filled the graveyards full. And I feel that what he was trying to do in his compassion was just begin to encourage us just to see what is true. Not to frighten us, never. Just to see what is true. Do we love fully as human beings until we die? Or do we die a little every day in the fear of death that can grip our hearts and close our minds so definitely? I feel that to postpone life in any way is a tragedy, given that it can end in any moment of any day. And letting go, this capacity to let go, is really the heart of the meditation practice. Perhaps you had a taste of it this morning. Just to be able to allow a sensation to arise and pass away. Just to allow a thought to arise, let go, return to the breathing. This capacity, I feel, to let go is the heart of the meditation practice. It is the core of a happy life. And it's certainly the essence of the teachings of all the masters who have gone before us. So how do we do this? I mean, it's the big question. How, how do we engender? How do we fortify? 
how do we uh, inculcate within us this capacity to come face to face with what is true. The Buddha lived two and a half thousand years ago. And his story is a great mythology, I think, for this question. He was born into the ruling royal family of the Shakyan tribes, foothills of the Himalayan mountains. And he was born to a king who uh, uh, was prosperous and wealthy and ambitious. And prior to the birth of Gautama, the Buddha, Gautama, uh, these uh, seers came to the house and uh, it was predicted that this child that was going to be born would either be a great spiritual savior or he would be a great warrior and a conqueror of nations. And his father decided, well, you know, I'm not going to have any of this airy-fairy spiritual stuff. He said, my son is going to succeed me and we're going to have an even bigger kingdom. And so what he did was he brought this child up in every luxury and abundance. He protected him from all that was difficult in the world. And so this, this boy grew up in, in, he had a home for every season of the year. At night, the gardeners swept through the gardens and took away all, all of the dead flowers. And he had beautiful courtesans and women for his pleasure. And there, were, there was apparently a lot of music in the house all the time. And his life was wonderful. And one day, he decided he really wanted to go to a nearby flower grove. And his father was concerned about this. And so what he did was he, he had his servants go into the village and clear out all of the dead flowers, all of the sick people, the old people, and uh, just had young, beautiful people flanking the roads. And so uh, Gautama and his servants in their chariot drove through the town to the flower grove. And it said that on the way there, out of the crowd stepped this old person and he was so shaken. And he said to his driver, he said, what is this? And his driver said, this is an old person. And he said, I've never seen anything like this before. He said, am I going to get old? And the driver said, yes, you know, all human beings are going to get old. And he was so impacted by this that they turned around, went back to the palace, and a few days later tried to make the same journey. And on this journey, he suddenly passed a sick person lying on the ground. And again, he said, well, what is this? And he said, it's, it's, it's sickness. You know, all human beings get sick. And he couldn't believe it. He was so touched. Turned around, went back, and a few days later tried again. And this time there was a corpse lying on the side of the road. And he said, what is this? And he said, it's a dead person. All human beings are going to die. And he was like so shaken that he turned around and on his way back to the palace, out of the forest stepped this mendicant, a monk, who had given up everything and was in search of the truth, like on the journey. And um, he said, what is that? And his driver told him. And he determined that that, that was what he was going to do. And so in the middle of the night, he left the palace. He relinquished all of his wealth and all of his heritage and went into the forest and practiced. And eventually, after six years, uh, he had this awakening experience. And it feels to me that, you know, just looking around the world today in our society and at the way we relate to dying and to death, to old age, to sickness, it's almost as if the palace walls that protected 
Siddhartha Gautama from the, the realities of the world have become the walls of our nursing homes and our hospitals and institutions and the places to which we so often send people uh, as they move through the last cycles of their life, so often so that we ourselves might be protected from what it is that they are going through. Bodies are whisked away sometimes and returned made up to look more lifelike than the people were in the last days of their lives. It's such a delusion. In India and the Middle East, there are dead bodies everywhere. When someone dies, their bodies are swaddled and wrapped up and at the railway stations. When you go there, there are bodies, people taking them home, taking them to be burnt. The reality of death is so much more available. How is it that we, we can get closer to this, this reality and shatter the delusion that we're going to live forever? For me, the meditation practice has been one of the, the essential ways in which I've come to uh, whatever accommodation I have with this question of mortality. Just again and again, being present to the arising and passing away of, of sensations in the body. Over the course of the day, we will open the practice to include other aspects of our experience. From the sensations in the body, we go to sounds, and we relate to the sounds in exactly the same way, with that same quality of awareness, just hearing. No words, no embroidery, no, oh, it's a beautiful bird, I wonder what color it is, it's a starling or a cardinal. Just a sound arising, passing away. The birth and death of tastes on the tongue arising, passing away. Smells arising. Thoughts coming and go. Emotions arising and passing. All the ways in which we experience the world. The essence of meditation coming into a deeper and deeper relationship with what is true. So important. One of the ways that I have like, deliberately over the years just kind of tr trying to avert the attention from the dream to what is true, is to really look around with the eyes of the eyes and the willingness of being, of seeing life in death and death in life. You know, perhaps even like seeing a twig on the ground, as I did outside. Can we both see it as a twig that once was filled with the sap of life, sprouting? leaves and is now lying there, to, to really acknowledge the mongoose on the side of the road that's been hit and dead and lived and is now gone, the crabs that are so dried and lying on the beach all pink when they were once jet black, just walking through the rainforests in Kohala and really acknowledging the mulch on the ground that once was, was above our heads, just being sensitive to the rhythms of nature, sensitive to the cycles. The whales come and they're here for three months and they birth and then the whales go. Beginning to take a deeper and deeper refuge in the change that is happening all around us. The lava pours out of Kilauea 
and flows down and then the four elements connect, earth, air, fire, water, transformation, land is born, water is transformed to steam, gases, everything changing, somehow integrating within us this, this dynamic change that is happening all around us. So powerful, just, just taking deeper refuge in these cycles of birth and death, relentless everywhere, all of the time. Just even like opening the newspaper and turning to the obituary columns in the newspaper and just taking in that all of these people are people who were living and who are now dead and then you just shift your gaze over one or two columns and there are the birth announcements of all the replacements that are coming in. You know, birth and death everywhere. Uh, in 1989, I was in South Africa and um, I was playing cards with my mother in the living room and my father called from the bedroom. It was just an ordinary day and nothing untoward had happened. And we sort of finished our game, you know, you know, our hand, and then we went in and he was in the middle of a massive heart attack. And it was amazing. I mean, in an instant, everything changed. I told my mom to go to the other side of the bed. We were, we were on either side and we were there. And it was like those were the most carefully watched breaths I'd ever seen. And as he went through one sort of upheaval within him after another, gasping for breath, it was like those moments seemed absolutely interminable and filled with life. And then it was all gone. And there he was. And as we sat there and we got some Bougainvilliers from outside and we cleaned him because he was a mess. And then we just sat and I looked over his profile at my mother and she looked back at me. And um, we just spoke to him and forgave him. And as his hands slowly turned cold in ours, it felt like such a blessed opportunity afterwards just to contradict so many notions I have about life going on. How are we doing? <laughs> I'd like to speak a little more personally, if I may, for a little while. In the early years of my practice, it was my great privilege to ordain as a monk, uh, a Buddhist monk at a Burmese forest monastery in the Redwoods in California. And the practice that the old Sayadaw, the old teacher taught, were various death awareness practices. The Buddha in his lifetime considered it absolutely fundamentally important that the nuns and the monks really come to an accommodation with their mortality. He felt that until, until beings have a real sense of how precious life is and that not a moment is to be squandered, he said, you know, that sense of urgency, if it does not inform our lives, he said, our lives to some degree are, 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 are a wasted opportunity. And so he developed these practices, some of which I did. What he used to do two and a half thousand years ago, which they still do in India, 
is, you know, there they don't have graveyards, all the bodies are burnt. And so what happens is they take the, the bodies to what are called burning ghats. And often these were like in Varanasi on the banks of the Ganga River. And they would put the body uh, on a pyre. And if the family had some wealth, they could buy uh, sticks and, and logs and stuff and they would burn it. They would take the body down to the, to the river and dip it in the holy river. Then they would take it up and put it on a funeral pyre, and the son, the eldest son, would light the fire. However, if there was no money and they couldn't have a funeral pyre, they would either just leave it in the river, or they would take it up and just leave it there to decompose, and the animals would come and feed on the body. And he used to send the nuns and monks into the burning gods to observe what was going on. Not to terrify them, not to freak them out, not to fill them with fear, but just to try and contradict the notion that what happened to them is not going to happen to us. And just seeing this happening again and again slowly begins to unlock this, this notion that we're going to um, live forever. The practice I did was what's called the meditation on the 32 parts of the body. And what we did, the nuns and the monks in the forest, we, we, we lived in the forest, was we just focused on different parts of the body in a very, very intensive way. And so, you know, be hair of the head, nails, teeth, skin, the flesh, the different fluids of the body, 32 parts altogether. And over months, what began to happen was the sense of solidity of the body began to dissolve. And as you experience, perhaps, with the changing sensations of the breath, I began to experience the whole body as nothing more than elements changing, that there was no hand. Hand was just a word. This was just cells coming into life, dissolving. And when the mind gets very still and very clear, we have a capacity to experience it on a real cellular level. And in that experience, one must begin to ask, who am I? How can I be this body if this body is nothing but changing elements, moment to moment to moment? It was very powerful. And the amazing thing was that there were interludes of such joy and such happiness because I felt like I was in the proximity of what was true. And I was no longer in the dream any longer. And I felt that I was taking my place in nature for the first time amongst the trees and the flowers where there was absolutely no separation between the trees, the leaves falling off the trees, and the fragility of my own life. It was such a relief. And one night we were taken to the Department of Anatomy at Santa Cruz University and um, we were taken into this huge big room and, I, and we, we each sat down next to uh, a table and we did loving-kindness meditation, which we'll do at the end of the retreat. And we extended loving-kindness to ourselves and to one another. And then uh, the head nun asked us to unzip the zipper next to us and there was this woman lying next to me. And she was dead, obviously. And we, I extended loving-kindness to her it was the most sacred moment of my life. This was before my father died. And I just extended loving kindness to her, and she, she seemed so ordinary, except she wasn't breathing. She had 
nail polish on her toes and earrings in her ears and everything. And then she, the, the head nun asked me to walk around to the other side of her, of her body and she'd been sliced completely in half. And in an instant, the delusion that I am this surface thing that looks like Gavin completely dissolved forever. It was so absolutely manifest without any possibility of denial that what we often consider ourselves and other people is absolutely paper thin. And inside is this miracle of nature that is so complex and obviously so changeable was right there before me. It was just the most sacred experience, one of the most sacred experiences of my life. And so the question is, how can we as human beings become informed to what is true? And each of us do it in our own way. Of course, those of you, the angels, I always like to think the hospice angels, those willing to do this incredible work, are bringing themselves to that edge. But I think it's an enormous responsibility for all of us to come closer and closer to what is true. <coughs> There's so many different directions I could go here. We'll have the discussion afterwards. I think I'm going to sort of close it because it's, it's such a big topic, you know. Um, I, I just want to acknowledge that in many of the spiritual teachings, in many of the traditions, they say that the fear of death underlies all fears that we have, that if you follow the thread of fear right to its very essence, that fear originates primarily in our fear of dying. And that important is our capacity and our willingness to bring ourselves to the edge of who we are and be willing to, to work with the fear. And perhaps later in the retreat I'll talk more about emotions and how we work with them in the meditation practice and how, how we work with fear. Hafiz, one of the Sufi poets of Iran, right next to the border with Afghanistan, uh, that, it, you know, that we all know is being uh, that is suffering so much at the moment. This child of Shiraz, very close to uh, Afghanistan. Uh, speaks to the immense love of Islam and the immense importance of being willing to go into ourselves and what an act of love it is. I'd like to just share with you what um, he says about fear. He says, in my divine studio what I have been working on is this. He says, painting the truth and revealing a more realistic picture of God. Tearing down the cruel walls that separate you from the tenderness of fire. Someone must be withholding the crucial lines in all those stories you have heard of our beloved, our God. For there is still too much fear and pallor upon your cheeks. And I rarely see you in the marvelous theater of freedom. I know you could not describe him 
and he's talking about God, even if we sat side by side on a caravan for years, even if we slept close in my desert tent and you became familiar with the holy scent that the son and my master leave whenever they visit me, for something has happened to your useful passion. That great fuel you once had to defend yourself against becoming tamed. And your eyes now often tell me that your once vital talent to extract joy from the air has fallen into sleep. All that you could ever say of me can only describe my camel's tail and that coarse hair that is barely visible sometimes on the left side of the moon's nose. In my divine studio where I'm sitting right now, crafting your heart, your lyre, and your flute, I long for the day when you will join me in knowing the extraordinary humor and all the enchanting realities of the infinite performances of God. In our willingness, in our capacity to face the truth of our mortality, it is my experience that blessedly, thankfully, and miraculously we unleash an alchemy of the heart which births all the peace, all the ease, and all the contentment that we always have yearned for, perhaps what brought us here today. The irony is so manifest and poignant. For me, what I feared most held the key to the birthright which had eluded me for so long. I believe that for all of us, coming face to face with death must birth us into a fullness of life, unfettered by a thirst for security and certainty that was an impossibility right from the very beginning. So finally, in the end, the joke seems to be on us. In collusion with the fear of our death, we paint a nightmare in our minds and recoil in terror from the brushstrokes of our handiwork, while all the, way, all the time behind and beyond the illusion, ironically, is the promise of all the blessings we have yearned for. In 1989, when I was diagnosed with AIDS and have now been living with this for 21 years, I am so grateful to be able to say to you that I know today a degree of ease and peace and contentment, of equanimity and real quiet joy that far exceeds my wildest expectations of what I thought ever could be possible for me, with or without the experience of this disease in my life now. And while my life or yours may seem like the designated identified tragedy, the big joke really is that in the end, we're all in the same boat. Perhaps I and others feel the waves a little more distinctly than most people do. More than ever, death feels like an illusion, just a short step from one garden to another, a return to a love long forgotten. 
And what increasingly defines my life these days is an unquenchable thirst to know the deepest and most unconditional love possible within the fire, the drama, the complexity of my life right now. I believe that this is my birthright and the birthright of all of us to know within the circumstances that we find ourselves, both within and outside of myself, along with and not defined by the circumstances in which we live, that peace which passeth all understanding is our birthright and we share that. These days the lens through which I experience my life is steadily shifting from darkness into light and my three years on this beloved island have been a blessing beyond expression in this direction. And I begin to hear the strains and the maladies of a song that I thought I'd last forever. And the words of that song remind me that I am who I am fundamentally is simply a great and pure love long forgotten. And the circumstances that brought me face to face with my mortality, I have no doubt of the things that have birthed this possibility. And the song has always been there. It certainly has been hidden, denied, swamped by the circumstances of my life, smothered by fear and confusion, but blessedly always there, ready to return to the light of day. And gone is what for me feels to be the absurd notion that this love needs to be found outside of myself, madly cultivated or accumulated. And I forgot. And now I'm beginning to remember again. And for me, highest expression of love for is to be present, to be fully awake, to be mindful with myself and with other people, the essence of what the meditation practice is about. For me, this is the truest love. This practice of mindfulness, this practice of insight meditation, feels to me to be a blessing beyond description. Unconscious love, I feel, is impossible. It's an oxymoron. I think to be awake truly is to love. And to remember, I think, is the greatest blessing. In 1994, when my book was published, um, I got really sick after the book came out. And I was admitted to hospital in Northampton, Massachusetts. I was, my temperature was 106.7. I had pneumonia. I dropped like 25 pounds so rapidly. And I was drenched in sweat day and night. It was really awful. My mind was dull and really exhausted. My friends thought I was checking out at the time. And in the middle of all of this one night, I awoke from this nightmare with a jolt and my mind was crisp and it was absolutely clear. I've no doubt uh, the blessing of the meditation practice was manifesting there. And surrounding me on every level, in every way, was this deep, velvet, comforting blackness. And underneath me, extending into the distance, was this river of what felt like, like salmon-colored, apricot-colored rose petals, extending right into the distance to a pinpoint. 
and the petals shimmered and glowed in contrast to the blackness. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever experienced. And I was sitting cross-legged, of course, on top of this river, and I was silently and effortlessly skimming along the surface of this river in front of me. And as I slowly moved forward, the point at which this river disappeared, as it got closer, this bright light slowly started coming towards me. And I wrote this down because I, I, I never wanted to sort of embroider on my experience of it at the time. And the closer I approached this love, the stronger I felt its impact. And this white love embraced me with an experience of limitless, full, absolute and unconditional love, quite unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And the closer I got to that light, the deeper the sense of coming home. It seemed so familiar. I felt bathed, saturated and infused with this incredible light. And the feeling of safety and protection embraced me as this light uh, got closer and closer as I moved towards it. And my heart erupted with such joy as I remembered again this love I had forgotten. It was absolutely familiar to me. And then at this point my mind got busy. It said, oh boy, you know, you're checking out. This is so beautiful. This is, uh, you haven't really suffered all that much. I remember this love. And I sort of even felt a glimmer of self-satisfaction, you know. And instantly I did a 90 degree turn and I was back in the blackness and then I woke up in the bed and the fever had broken and uh, the life support equipment that they were just ready to like plunk and attach to you or whatever they do to them and the crisis was over. But my overwhelming memory of that night and it's now seven years ago, August, was of the loving light. And in the end, I have no idea really what that was all about. But what I'm left with and what I'd like to leave you with is that I'm left with this unshakable knowing that the movement towards death for me in some unfathomable and mysterious way, way beyond words, is a movement towards a profound and boundless love that we long, long have forgotten. And at any time, if I remember, I can evoke the joy and the gladness and the relief that I felt that night in hospital. And for me, the fear of death is so fundamentally diluted these days by the indelible impression left by that experience. That death is not some catastrophic eventuality. It's just a manifestation of what is true in the laws of nature that are holding us every moment of life in a web out of which we can never, ever, ever fall. We only think we can. We think we're alone. We think we're separate. But we're not. Rumi, the other great Sufi, Another of the great Sufi poets who I love a lot. I love the Sufis. I'd like to end with, with him. It says, 
And this is the book from which the ruby that you sent me is from. It says, You and I have spoken all these words. He says, But for the way we have to go, words are no preparation. There's no getting ready other than grace. My faults have stayed hidden. One might call that a preparation. I've one small drop of knowing in my soul. Let it dissolve in your ocean. There are so many threats to it. Inside of us there's a continual autumn. Our leaves fall and are blown out over the water. A crow sits in the blackened limbs and talks about what's gone. Then your generosity returns. Spring, moisture, intelligence, and the smell of hyacinth and cypress. Joseph is back. And if you don't feel in yourself the freshness of Joseph, be Jacob. Weep and then smile. Don't pretend to know something you haven't experienced. There is a necessary dying. And then Jesus is breathing again. Very little grows on jagged rock. Be ground, be crumbled, so wild flowers will come up where you are. Try something different. Surrender. May we sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.